What do we make of these things? What do we make of the crucifixion of Christ? How do we understand it? What is the purpose for such cruelty? Why do we, as a church, celebrate year after year this terrible, terrible day and call it a good day? Why is it that we view the death of an innocent man as something that's good? You know, the world has all sorts of reasons for why Jesus came. Who was this Jesus? Who was the Jesus that walked this earth? Those who would admit that there was a historical figure named Jesus, which the preponderance of the evidence shows there was and a, a, a historical Jesus who walked the earth, had all sorts of reasons why Jesus would go to a cross, why he was crucified. He was crucified because he couldn't take over the Romans at the time and his uprising failed. Uh, he was a failure and died a failure. Uh, other accounts of what Jesus did and said, you might have seen recently in the news and on television the Gospel of Judas which was found, this ancient text which goes back to the 200-300 AD uh, has an alternative view of what happened to the, uh, in comparison to the four Gospels that we have. And just let me say up front, there's really very, very, very little evidence that this has anything to do with the historical Jesus. It is a, a late writing about an event that twists and turns the, act, the events to make it sound and make it say what these, this cult wanted to believe. This cult that raised Judas to a high level, that he wasn't the betrayer that everybody thought he was. He was specially chosen by Jesus, and that he was actually the exalted one amongst the disciples. And he was simply doing Jesus' bidding when he betrayed Jesus. It wasn't a betrayal. It was doing what Jesus said. Uh, historians, they don't believe that this was really historically accurate. I mean, those who really study the evidence. Um, but what effect does the story of Jesus Christ have on us today? Why is it important? Why is it significant? The real story of what Jesus Christ has done fits into the cosmic plan that God has set into motion from eternity past, from before the foundations of the world, as Ephesians 1 puts it. Tonight, I want us to consider the reason that Christ came was not to be an example of God's love. It was not merely to be an influence to us to be morally pure and good people. It wasn't just a nice man doing something good for others. This is Jesus Christ acting as our Redeemer. Our Redeemer. That is what he came to accomplish. Redemption was what he came for. He came to be our Redeemer. As we consider various portions of God's Word tonight, let us pray and ask for the Lord's insight and wisdom into His Word. Lord, we thank You that Your Word is truth. We thank You that You've given us clear revelation of what happened to Your Son, Jesus. We thank You for the evidence that is there. We thank You for Your commentary, Your divine and inspired Word that tells, you, tells us why You came that you are our Redeemer, 
and how significant that is for us today. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of the reality that we would ground and connect these truths that happened in history to our lives today, that Christ's death on the cross matters to us today. I pray, Lord, for your Spirit's blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. When I consider uh, investigating who Jesus was and what he has done and what his life was like, the Bible is the authoritative source for that. It has the most evidence, the most manuscript evidence for the veracity of the gospel writer's account of what happened in the life of Jesus. Four gospels that synchronize so well together, describing what exactly happened in the life of Christ. Now, the Word of God is, is vast, and it covers millennia of time. And to put together all of God's revelation and how it points to the significance of Christ as our Redeemer is a tall task. But I think that the writers of our confession, the Westminster Confession, did an excellent job. And as they, they boiled it down into a shorter catechism, I think it serves for us uh, a roadmap. Uh, Cliff's notes uh, of sorts to give us a way through all that's written in here so that we can summarize and, and get to the nuggets, the, the points about why Christ came. I remember getting this uh, beat up old catechism at uh, church camp. Tony and I went to summer camp at church and there's a lot of other stories I won't tell you about church camp, but we got catechism at church camp and we would uh, have our feet off the floor time in the afternoon where we'd have to do a Bible verse and memorize our catechism. And I remember, you know, just kind of putting all this stuff in my head and reading through and just uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Got past the first one, two, three, and, and you know, you just kind of fizzle out. And, you know, it wasn't until I really started teaching young people the catechism for myself as, as a teacher, as a pastor, that I understood how beautifully it's laid out for us, Christ. Christ and his work, why he came. What is the significance of Christ's death today? I want us to walk through what the catechism says because it shows us what God's word says. God's word is the authority, it's the truth. But I want us to use this map today to guide us through this truth. The question I want us to consider in the Westminster Shorter Catechism number 20 is, did God leave all mankind to perish in an estate of sin and misery? Well, that presupposes 19 other questions, which to summarize, <laughs> a lot happened. God created man, male and female, after his own image. He made a covenant with them, a covenant that was conditioned on perfect obedience, a covenant of life, that they should not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, but any other tree they could. And the day they ate of it, they would surely die. And that's what happened in truth. They broke covenant with God. And because our head, our representative Adam, sinned, death came to all mankind. And so this estate that we landed in, this place that we landed in, is truly sinful and miserable. The fall, as we call it, the sin entering into the world brought such a miserable and sinful existence did God leave it that way? Did he say that's just the way it is? Man, you screwed it up and that's what you're going to have to live with. No, he didn't. He did something. That God, having out of his mere good pleasure, just because he wanted to, 
from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. God's work on our behalf, God's grace is shown to us by what Jesus had to do, what Jesus could only do, what Adam could never do. Jesus did fully. He is our redeemer. What is a redeemer? I like what the Nelson's uh, Bible Dictionary says. It's in your notes there. One who frees or delivers another from difficulty, danger, or bondage, usually by the payment of a ransom price. That's what we're considering tonight. The ransom price paid so that we can be free. Now, as you look at those notes, I don't want you to be too concerned, okay? <laughs> don't be afraid. Uh, they're kind of scary. This is just a reference. You know, put it, put it in your Bible and, and look at it throughout the week and, and digest it. We're not going to digest it all tonight. But we want to look at the Redeemer, Christ, our Redeemer, and the Redeemer's plan, that this plan was set forth in eternity, in eternity past. We see that God had a plan from Ephesians 1 to save a people for himself. And we see that this covenant that is made is in first in Genesis revealed as a covenant of life. If you eat from any tree in the garden, you'll be fine. This one tree, don't eat from it or you'll die. Life is contingent on you obeying my command, God said. And Adam and Eve failed. But God then instituted his covenant of grace. He was going to do what Adam couldn't do. There was going to be another Adam, a second Adam, to do what Romans 5, 12 and following describes for us. Listen to how Paul puts this in perspective, his commentary on what happened in the garden. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Adam's sin brought misery and death. But there was one to come, one that Adam knew would come, that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the heel of this one who was to come. In Romans 5, 15, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Jesus, our mediator, our go-between, between us and the Father. He is the Redeemer, the one who would free us, the one who would free us from this miserable, sinful existence. What are we being redeemed from? We need to understand that first. Before we talk about Jesus, and I think we're guilty of this in, in modern evangelicalism, is just talking about all the good things you can have if you have Jesus. If Jesus is your Redeemer, if you trust Jesus as your Savior, you'll have this and that and the other and good family, good life. And, and yet we forget, we forget to make clear what is it that we need redemption from. What's our condition outside of Christ? What's the problem that we have? Question 19 in our shorter catechism 
talks about this, a state of sin and misery. And it makes it pretty graphic what that a state of sin and misery is like. And I hope a lot of these are familiar to you young people who have been studying them. What is the misery of that estate wherein to man fell all mankind by their fall lost communion with God? And it's listed for you there. Are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, to the pains of hell forever. Is that good? That's bad. That's really bad. And if you really come to terms with how bad off we are, as God describes it, it can be, it can be mind-numbing. I mean, really, when we consider what we are in this world without a Redeemer, where our sin has landed us, how miserable life is without God. In this life, we lost communion with God. In this life, we still experience the wrath and curse of God. And all the miseries, sickness, pain, sorrow, none of that would be if sin hadn't entered the world. But we are subject to that. At death, we suffer, and we're no more. But there's beyond death. There is an eternal existence for each and every one of us. But in our state of sin and misery, the only eternity we have is the pains of hell forever. Some people consider this message that is God's message in his word and some people are just oblivious to it. Some people just don't know that that's the reality, that this is the truth. But when people start to hear that, they, if they don't tune it out, then maybe they just kind of get numb to it. They hear it all the time. They hear preachers preaching hellfire and brimstone, and, and it doesn't register that that's me. I deserve that. No, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I haven't been that bad. I'm no Hitler. I'm no... I don't deserve hell, but the Bible makes it clear that each and every one of us deserve hell. That could lead you to despair. I think if, if I didn't understand the work of Christ as my Redeemer, and I, yet I read and understood what my sinful condition was and what my state was without him, I'd be in utter despair. I think catatonic. I don't think I could cope with the world around me. But this is not where God has left us. He doesn't leave us in this estate of sin and misery. But he makes a way to deliver us out of this place, to pull us out, to transplant us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. And how does he do that? What does he do? He redeems us to an estate of salvation. I want us to consider what this estate of salvation is like. Because as terrible and as wretched and as awful as sin has made life and the life hereafter, God's redemption in Christ has made life and the hereafter a glorious thing. In question 36 in our catechism, it talks about the benefits of adoption, of justification, of sanctification, of salvation. What good is it that Christ redeems us? Why is it good for us? What do we have? Well, we have things in this life, we have things at death, and we have things in eternity, at the resurrection, that we have to look forward to because Christ is the Redeemer. We have first assurance of God's love. I love what 1 John 4, 16 says. So we have come now 
we have come to know and believe the love of God that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in his love abides in God, and God abides in him. You can know that in this life, if you're trusting Christ, your Redeemer, you can have assurance that God loves you. And I don't say that to everybody. I say that especially for those who are redeemed, that God loves you. As you abide in his love, God's love abides in you. We can have peace of conscience in this life. Brothers and sisters, I see a lot of people who are torn up inside, and it is just littered all over their lives on the outside because of sin and its work on their conscience and their consciences work on their hearts. You see it around you at your workplace. You see it in your neighborhood. You see people whose lives are just torn up because of sin and their conscience is eating at them. But Scripture says we can have peace of conscience. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We can stand firm and our conscience isn't convicting us because Christ, our Redeemer, has made peace with God for us. We have joy in the Holy Ghost. Brothers and sisters, if you're not experiencing joy in the Holy Ghost, you need to consider again what Scripture says. Listen to what Romans 14, 17 says. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's for this life now. That's not just in the hereafter. That's for today, that the kingdom is now. The kingdom of God is of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What about an increase of, life, of grace in this life? I love how Proverbs 4 gives this illustration of the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Tony and I got to be out this morning as the light was coming more and more into full day. As you see that coming and coming, that progress, you know it's not going to be stopped. It's coming. There's nothing will stop the dawn of day. It's sure. And so is with the righteousness that God has and the grace that he gives us, it grows and grows in us. Have you experienced that growth in grace? Have you seen grace growing in your life? Your appreciation for God's grace, your understanding of it? Maybe you've just started in your understanding of it recently and you're starting to comprehend more and more of how vast and awesome God's grace is. But it just keeps building and welling up inside. What we have in this estate of a salvation that he's redeemed us to is perseverance therein to the end. 2 Timothy 1.12, what a wonderful verse. It says, which, I which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. He is able to guard the trust, to keep the trust, to keep us secure, to keep us ever and always his own. And brothers and sisters, at death, I'll quickly go through these. We're made perfect in holiness. Pastor Tony referred to this Hebrews 12 verse uh, just this last Sunday, that the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous upon their death are going to be made perfect. We'll be made perfect. 
what a day that will be. We always just console each other by saying nobody's perfect and nobody can be perfect and I'm not perfect and yet we will be one day. What a glorious thing to look forward to. At death, our souls will immediately pass into glory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, that we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that we'll be with Him, and that we'll rest in our graves until the resurrection. Job even knew this, probably the earliest writings that we have of Holy Scripture. Job says, Yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. He knew in his flesh that he would see the Lord. And we have a great hope that we've been redeemed to, this state of salvation in eternity. At the resurrection, question 38 tells us that we'll be raised up in glory, openly acknowledged and acquitted in that day, made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Each of those statements with those verses you need to look at, study, consider, that we'll be raised up in glory, that we'll be raised in power, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, openly acknowledged and acquitted. We'll have our day in a court and we'll stand before the judge of the universe. We'll know our guilt, but that guilt will not condemn us because we're trusting the Redeemer. If your faith is in what Christ has done, not what you've done in yourself, you are trusting Him, then you'll be acquitted on that day because righteousness has been added to your account as the Redeemer has gifted us. And on that day of judgment, the Master will say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I anticipate that day with great joy that God will say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. We'll be in the full enjoying of God. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. What a thought. We'll be like God, not equal with God. We will be with Him. We'll see Him as He is. We'll be with him for all eternity. As 1 Thessalonians 4 says, So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I'm doing what it says here. I want to encourage you today that because you have a Redeemer in Jesus Christ, you simply put your faith and trust in what he has done on your behalf. The ransom he's paid. The ransom he paid when he hung on the cross is what has bought for you the joys of heaven, the blessedness of this life that we can have now, and what he has freed us from. How can he do this? How can he accomplish this redemption for us? What did it take? It took an amazing, amazing sacrifice. How has God accomplished a redemption? Uh, question 23 talks about uh, what offices or what roles does our Redeemer execute? What does He do to get redemption for us? Well, He works as our perfect prophet, our perfect priest, our perfect king in His humiliation and His exaltation. And think of His humiliation. Think of the God of the universe who spoke the worlds into existence, who now takes on human flesh the enfleshment, the incarnation, we call it, 
That's a, that's a prettier word for what that word really means is he put on flesh on top. He added a human nature. So Christ's humiliation started in being born. Just being born was a humiliation for him. It's the greatest day that we have and we celebrate when a new life is born. And that's a wonderful experience for us. But consider the God of the universe. Spirit adding now flesh. Humiliation. And it doesn't stop there. He was born in a low condition, stable, in a manger, made under the law. The lawgiver now becomes the law follower. He undergoes the miseries of this life. He stubs his toe. He gets a cold. He gets made fun of. The miseries of this life that we experience, our Savior experienced. He underwent the wrath of God. And finally, the cursed death of the cross, being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. This is what we celebrate today. His humiliation. The humiliation that he underwent for us. So that this state of sin and misery that we're in, he didn't leave us there. He's going to bring us up. But he had to come down first. He needed to be humiliated to our station in life so that he can be a, a suitable sacrifice for us so that he can bring us from this terrible rotten state and then listen in his exaltation to bring us to a glorious state in his exaltation it consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day the celebration that we'll have on easter sunday in ascending up into heaven in sitting at the right hand of god the father and in coming to judge the world on the last day because our Savior is a risen Savior, a glorified Savior, that his sacrifice has been accepted by God. He says, Lord, it's into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. Sins have been atoned for. God raises Christ from the dead and says, your sacrifice was complete. Your sacrifice secured. Salvation for all my chosen ones. What do we need to do about that? What's our reaction to it? How do we respond to all that he's done in redeeming us? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ. Our catechism says, the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Simply put, God works a work in you that you may not be able to understand or explain, that he changes your mind and your attitude and your heart from that of oblivion or carelessness or wantonness to a heart that is pricked and tender and feels the miseries and the sin and all the terrible consequences of that sin and he works then faith in us I believe that this is true I understand now what God has revealed to me what he's showing me by his spirit we wouldn't come to these conclusions on our own we'd still be wandering around in the gospel of Judas except that the God of the universe has to come into our lives open up our eyes take off the blinders and say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ trust him you can't do it yourself. 
you can't experience the joy and the peace and the rest and the comfort and the peace of conscience unless you cease your striving, you say, I give up, Lord. It's not me. I can't do it. And I need a redeemer. I need you, Jesus. That realization that you came to at some point in your life or that you're just now starting to understand and, and maybe coming to make that decision tonight, that's not something you're going to come up with on your own. That's not something that your natural man appreciates, likes, or is drawn to in any sense. It needs to be a work that only the Spirit can do to us, can call us and apply to us salvation by working faith in us. Brothers and sisters, I want us to consider the reality of Christ's work for us. And as we understand his death, as we understand his torment, as we understand his pain, we can understand that the God of the universe, as our Redeemer, came to suffer all this so that he could bring us, his adopted children, into this estate of salvation because he is our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for giving us your son. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your work in opening eyes and hearts and minds to the truth that it's only by faith in Christ Jesus that we can be right, that we can have salvation. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a new appreciation for all that went into securing salvation for us, that you would give us faith to believe. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.